Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Ve salatu ve selamu ala Resulillah. Ve alihi ve sahbihi ve man wala. So here at the Cambridge Muslim College we have been offering to the uh, Ummah, at least the Anglophone Ummah, uh, a series of lectures in which we've looked at uh, a range of the topics that seem to arise necessarily when we consider the Ten Blessed Days in which we now find ourselves uh, and the lead up to the Hajj, the culmination of Muslim year and of Muslim life. Ibadatul Umar, the form of worship that only needs to be practiced once in our life. And one meaning of which, of course, is that we need to make sure that we get it right, or at least as good as we can make it the first time round. We have plenty of opportunities to pray an asr that's better than the zuhr in which we were distracted. But with the hajj, perhaps by Allah's leave and his generosity will come again. But it's the first hajj that is the obligation and we need to study it, to understand it, to recognize its subtleties. And that can sometimes be a challenge for some of us raised in the West where ideas of pilgrimage and indeed the forms that we see on the hajj can seem very unfamiliar and indeed unlike anything else that we find in Islam. So what I want to do is to look at some of the, not the ahkam, the formal rulings of the hajj, but some of the, as it were, adab, courtesies, uh, some of which have already been dealt with ably by Sheikh Suhail in this series. But also to consider some of the, if you like, ethical and political consequences and meanings of the hajj, which help us to answer this great question of why the seerah is possible how it turns the improbability of a major world religion being launched under such hostile circumstances into something that uh, brings us here today and brings so many millions to the holy city every year, the, the miracle of the seerah. So I'd like to start with a few thoughts from Imam al-Ghazali, not that today I'll be going through his book of Hajj, but I do want to Free, uh, make the atmosphere fragrant a little bit at the beginning of this session by uh, referring to his works uh, and I'm going to be referring to a number of other classical works, hadith, sira and so forth. So let's see how he begins his book, uh, Kitab Asrar al-Hajj, Secrets of the Hajj. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi alladhi ja'ala kalimat al-tawheed li'ibadihi hirzan wa hisna. وجعل البيت العتيق مثابة للناس وأمنا وأكرمه بالنسبة إلى نفسه تشريفا وتحصينا ومنا وجعل زيارته والطواف به حجابا بين العبد وبين العذاب ومجنا والصلاة على محمد النبي الرحمة وسيد الأمة وعلى آله وصحبه قادة الحق وسادة الخلق وسلم تسليما كثيرا so this is his debadger, they call it. It's kind of embroidery, uh, 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 an exordium uh, in quite uh, emphatic and classical, rather Baroque Arabic rhyming prose that always, particularly for authors such as Imam Ghazali, indicates something of the ethos or the spirit of the topic. So let's translate this briefly. Praise be to Allah who appointed the word of Tawheed to be a protection and a fortress for his servants. So Hajj directly relates to Tawheed. And made the ancient house a place of recourse for mankind and a sanctuary. And ennobled 
mankind uh, by relating him to his own self, to honour him, to protect him and to bless him. And has made the visit to the house and circumnavigating it, at tawaf bihi, a protection or a veil between the servant and the punishment. And blessings be to Muhammad, the prophet of mercy, the Sayyid of the Ummah and his family and his companions, the leaders of the truth, the lords of creation, and protect them and bless them abundantly. So our first thought is why does the Imam choose these particular qualities? He begins by reminding us of Tawheed. The Hajj is about Tawheed, about Tajreed, that is to say, stripping aside all of our other attachments, uh, taking off the Rolex, taking off all of the other treats and putting on the simple garment uh, with which we approach the symbol of the divine eternity, pre-existence and everlastingness. And this Tawheed is a protection for us. So as we approach the sanctuary, this Mathaba, this Amna, we find a protection in it. So that's another thought. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the wakil, he is the muhaymin, he is the hafiz, the protector. And the bait, the house, represents that. So when we claim sanctuary there, as one could under classical sharia, it's a, a refuge, a sanctuary, a sacrosanct place. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala connected human beings and the ancient house to himself. He calls the Kaaba his house, Baytullah, uh, in order to, as the Imam says, to, uh, out of honoring and protection and blessing. And then he made it visiting it and circumambulating it a protection again that protects the servant from the punishment. And then blessings to the Holy Prophet and his companions who are the leaders of truth and the masters of mankind, etc. So that's the note on which the Imam wishes to initiate us into this sacred journey and the outward mu'amala-based understanding of it. It's about tawheed, it's about protection, it's about blessing. And there is a sense, and we feel that Imam <coughs> has already touched quite a deep point here, in which the entry to the haram, the sanctuary, and the proximity to the house, and for those who are there, the holding on to the astar, the folds of the kiswa, represent the human yearning for the protection of the divine. We seek Allah's protection. So this is the la malja wa la manja minka illa ilayk. As the Holy Prophet says in his famous du'a, there is no place of rescuing and there is no place to flee but to you. So we flee to him. Fafirru ilallah, the Qur'an says. And the hajj is an outward enactment of that. And so powerful in its symbols, in the sha'air and the ayat. The haram, fihi ayatun bayinat, 
in it are clear signs that a certain alchemy uh, takes place in the soul uh, at a deeper level than one that we could really express. So the Imam does indicate, and the Ihya's greatness is predicated on the fact that he talks us through the outward forms of religion in such a way as to indicate something of the inward reconfiguration of our fractured inner souls that those outward forms bring about. So let's turn now to, towards the end of the book uh, and very briefly list the main headings of his final chapter where he talks about al-adab al-taqiqa wal-a'amal al-batina the subtle courtesies and the inner actions. To make an intention is actually an action even if nobody can see you doing it because it's something that we will so uh, they're considered to be actions as well as inner states. To, to take on one of those inner states through an act of will is itself an act. So uh, he goes through these, and there's 10 of them. And I'll just summarize them very briefly. Al-awwal, an takuna nafaqatu halala. The first of the courtesies of the hajj is that one's money that one uses to pay for the hajj is halal. There's no good saving up on the basis of the lottery scratch cards that you've been selling in the shop in order to put a little bit aside for your hajj and your family. This is important. In fact, the imam says it's the most important thing. And this question of halal is really significant in, in Islam, that our makkal and our mashrab, our food and our drink, and our maskan, the place we live in, is everything that, that sustains us in this dunya must come from something that is lawfully ours and that we have not transgressed the rights of others in acquiring it. This is something that affects the, the power of, of the prayer, the validity of the zakat, um, um, all of these basic arkan of the religion are predicated on this wara. Wara is the traditional word for the virtue of scrupulousness, which mainly means making sure that what you're doing and what you're spending comes from lawful sources and isn't based on some kind of uh, offending against Allah's rights or the rights of neighbor or family and so forth. Number two, wathani. Allah yu'awina a'ada Allahi subhana bi taslim al-maks wa hum as-sadduna 'anil masjid al-haram min umara Makkah wal-a'rab. This is something that has a rather different implication nowadays. The second is that one should not support Allah's enemies by paying any unlawful tax to them, because these are people who bar people from a masjid al-haram. So whenever the custodians of the haramain start to add additional charges, the ulama around the world, the free ulama, immediately stand up and say, well, this is exactly what the imam is saying. You can't tax people's piety and price the poor out of this. Uh, this is number two in Imam al-Ghazali's list of ten. So avoid those uh, uh, obstacles. Al-thalith. At-tawassu'u fi zaad wa tribun nafsi bil-badli wal-infaq min ghayri taqdeer wa la israf. So this means making sure that you uh, have a balanced approach to your provision and your arrangements nowadays. We might say your ticketing, hotel and so forth. Do not uh, be too mean 
uh, and the kind of people who save money by not having a hotel in Mecca and just sleeping on cardboard along with many others just to save money. This is not a way of honouring the Hajj in the house. But similarly, to stay in the royal suites of the Hyatt Regency with the view looking directly down on the Kaaba is not uh, appropriate in Imam Ghazali's view of Islam either. Number four is to avoid ugly language, corrupt, obscene speech, and argumentativeness, as the Quran itself specifies. As Allah says. In other words, what you say when you're crammed together in the 120 degree heat on top of a lorry in Mina that hasn't moved for six hours is not to, to jostle and to shout and to complain and to use bad language because the Hajj is, is an ordeal, it's an austerity. Retain that adab. Number five, that one should make one's Hajj on foot in Qadra Ali, for the al Aftal. So to the extent that you can go on foot, that is preferable. Um, nowadays, of course, they don't like you doing that, but uh, it is a very beautiful thing because part of the traditional spiritual transformation of the Hajj came about from the fact that it took a long time, maybe several months, to get there. So you were steadily acclimatized um, to uh, the spirituality <coughs> of the Haram rather than one day being in Harrods and six hours later being in Arafat. Uh, uh, the soul needs time to adjust. Sadis Allah Yarkabu illa zamilatan ammal mahmal falyaj So this is uh, that one should uh, ride a beast with a light saddle and not some kind of expensive, complicated palanquin that protects you from the sun's rays and so forth. So this relates to uh, point number four, really, the modesty and not not doing the, the five-star hajj that some people seem to like doing. You see people and arriving at Arafat in helicopters sometimes. Um, I've seen this. And they're doing the express hajj and they do an extra sacrifice and they're basically just going to be there on Arafat and pay for the other things that they've missed. Uh, no. The seventh is that even though he has said, don't go as a kind of tramp because that doesn't respect the house, that you should look scruffy, uh, be dusty, and not care too much about your appearance. Number eight. Number eight is that one should be kind to the animal one is riding and not make it carry too much. A very characteristically Islamic ethos, of course. One would go on Hajj surrounded by animals, thousands of camels, donkeys, mules and whatever, and uh, part of the ad of the Hajj is kindness to animals. And of course, uh, nowadays with Islamic environmentalism, it's very often pointed out that the Haram, or the Hema, which is around uh, the holy cities, um, represent places uh, where uh, animals may not be hunted, apart from snakes, scorpions, um, rabid dogs, and so forth. There's, there's six categories mentioned in, in the Hadith. Uh, 
because the sanctuary is not just the human sanctuary, but is the sanctuary for wildlife as well. It's the world's oldest wildlife park, if you like. Um, and this is a precedent for some of the attempts that are being made nowadays to save rainforests in Malaysia and so forth. التاسر. Number nine. أن يتقرب بإراقة الدم وإن لم يكن واجبا عليه. That even if it's not an obligation for you, you should make sure that you participate in one of the, the sacrifices at the end of the Hajj, because this is an Abrahamic Sunnah. And finally, العاشر أن يكون طيب النفس بما أنفقه من نفقة. So that one should be uh, sweet-hearted, literally, regarding the expense and the, the tiresomeness of everything, that you shouldn't regret it. Oh, that Hajj was really expensive. No, it, because it's Fisa Bilillah. It's the best journey that you'll ever take. So afterwards and during the process, don't feel bad about the state of your bank balance. So those are the 10 points that I wanted to <coughs> start with today, because I think that they convey something of the sense that the Hajj is not just a series of outward practices, but is about a'mal batina, as the Imam says, and that is very much what I want to talk about. So following on from that, it is interesting to note that this ishtiaq il al-bayt, this longing for the house uh, that the believer feels, that when they think, well, maybe I'll do Hajj this year, and then if the believer is really a believer, they'll be accompanying that, a series of often quite overpowering emotions that are summarized not so much by the longing for <coughs> Arafat, Muzdalifah, Jamarat, and so forth, but for the house itself. And Imam Ghazali says that's the beginning of your Hajj, and that's the sign of Iman. And that is, of course, the longing for the divine. Hajj is all symbols, meta symbols. Uh, because the, the, the Kaaba is Allah's house and the pilgrims are Allah's guests, Duyufur Rahman, that we go to the all compassionate, the merciful, to the divine beloved, and Rahma and Mahabba, mercy, love, the described two aspects of a single virtue. So, very often in our literature, we find the idea of the Kaaba likened to that of a beloved. So here's Fakhreddin Iraqi in his Lama'at. There's an English translation of this now. It's, uh, he's a famous uh, 13th century uh, writer and poet, although these were in prose. Uh, there's 28 of these sparks in the book. And for instance, this is where he's talking about love, the basic the connection between creature and creator. But now to our intent, a few words explaining the way stations of love. In tune with the voice of each spiritual state as it passes, I shall dictate them as a mirror to reflect every lover's beloved. But how high is love, too high for us to circle the Kaaba of its majesty on the strength of mere understanding, mere words. And very often our scholars and our poets uh, remind us that the mystery of love itself, love for beauty and therefore for, for the creator, is something that you really can't put into words. It famously transcends that. It's something for art, for poetry, that reaches through ishara, uh, not through ibarah, not through formal 
terms and somebody who has not experienced it will never really be able to know what one is talking about. Uh, and that this is analogized to the mystery of the Hajj. The Hajj can be really mysterious. What is the meaning of the Kaaba? Why is it cubic? Why is the Hijr of Ismail there? Why seven tawafs? What is the Sa'i? What, everything seems to be unlike everything else that we do in the religion. Uh, <clears throat> and for the poets, uh, this is because uh, it's about love. It's a journey of love and this ishtiyakh, this longing for the house with which it begins, is an indication of that. So uh, throughout our literature, this is the most frequently used metaphor for the, the journey of, of, of mahabba and of ishq. But that's not actually what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, instead, uh, I'm interested in looking at the role of the Hajj in the story of the Prophet's life, alayhi salatu wasalam, the seerah. One of the problems I think the Ummah has nowadays is that very often we memorize Quran, perhaps we memorize Hadith, we learn fiqh, but we don't engage, I think, as much as we used to in seerah. Although the seerah is the kind of putting into practice of everything else. It's through the seerah that you get a sense of where each part of the Qur'an was revealed and in which context. It's the seerah that gives you the sense of where the great hadiths were spoken. The seerah shows you the fiqh, the sharia, and the usul put into practice, the spirituality put into practice. So you can't really study Islam unless seerah is right at the heart of it. And of course, it's the greatest story ever told. You can neglect it for six months and then open a book of seerah and immediately <laughs> it grabs you. You want to know what happens next. It has that captivating uh, effect. When my children were little on long car journeys, yeah, we put the cassette, let's go back sometime in, uh, of uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's uh, seerah series and they would stop fighting and stop yelling and sit. Oh, what happens next? Can we have the next cassette? Even though they were small, it's, it has a kind of captivating quality. It's a, an iconic ancient epic. So we shouldn't deprive ourselves of that great story and think, well, I'll look at Netflix instead or something. And some storyboard writer, probably a committee of about 10 people, who are not really interested in providing human enlightenment or upliftment, but simply have studied statistical analyses of what makes people want to watch things, what kind of violence, what kind of sex scene, what kind of, what do the actors have to look like? It's very stylized and very cynical. Uh, why should we prefer that over you know, the story of uh, the Holy Prophet wasallam? And the Hajj, I think, is enriched for us if we do recall uh, the pilgrimages of the Holy Prophet wasallam in their context, the context of the Hijrah and the context of the conquest, the context of, of, of his life. So one thing that I want to look at uh, is the conquest of Mecca in particular uh, in the context of the history of diplomacy. I've been thinking about this recently. Uh, history is a story of armies clashing and marriages, uh, but it's also the story of negotiations and coups of various cunning kinds. So uh, 
one place to look at this might be, non-Muslim writer, Montgomery Watt. Okay, little bit long in the teeth now. He's been in his grave 15 years or so. But he has this book, which is a summary of his longer book, uh, Muhammad, Prophet and Statesman. Hmm. Well, you could say Prophet and so many other things. He chooses statesmanship because of the staggering and inconceivable success of the story, uh, which is you know, now a quarter of the world's population having been just uh, Abu Bakr and Bilal and a few people hiding in the catacombs. So uh, there's a section towards the end assessment. The foundations of greatness. So various circumstances. And then he identifies three things. Without a remarkable combination of qualities in Muhammad, it's improbable that this would ever have taken place, etc. So three qualities. First, there's Muhammad's gift as a seer, that is to say, well, we would say prophet. Why can't he say prophet, but seer? Okay. Provision of such a framework involved both insight into the fundamental causes of the social malaise of the time and the genius to express this insight in a form which would stir the hearer to the depths of his being. So it's the Quranic voice and the prophetic quality which changes his difficult people. Secondly, there's Muhammad's wisdom as a statesman. The conceptual structure found in the Quran was merely a framework the framework had to support a building of concrete policies and concrete institutions. In the course of this book, much has been said about Muhammad's far-sighted political strategy and his social reforms. Okay. So his wisdom in these matters is shown by the rapid expansion of his small state to a world empire after his death, and by the adaptation of his social institutions to many different environments and their continuance for 13 centuries. Well, 14 centuries. Uh, yeah, the brilliance of the seerah is that he laid down a form of life, quite a detailed form of life, uh, exampled as the immutable sunnah, which becomes the foundation of human life in so many very un-Arabian places. So that's another source of greatness. Thirdly, there's his skill and tact as an administrator and his wisdom in the choice of men to whom to delegate administrative details. Sound institutions and a sound policy will not go far if the execution of affairs is faulty and fumbling. When Muhammad died, the state he had founded was a going concern, unable to withstand the shock of his removal, and once it had recovered from this shock to expand at prodigious speed. The more one reflects on the history of Muhammad and of early Islam, the more one is amazed at the vastness of his achievement. Hmm. Had it not been for his gifts as seer, statesman and administrator, and behind these his trust in God and firm belief that God had sent him, a notable chapter in the history of mankind would have remained unwritten. Well, so statesman. So uh, you could say that there are several culminations to the prophetic career. You could say, well, it's the Hijrah. That's defensible. You could say it's the Mi'raj. Defensible. Battle of Badr, okay, beginning of Revelation even, Bad al-Wahi. But there's something quite titanic about the conquest of Mecca, Fatah Mecca, and the purification and the reintegration 
not just of the Kaaba and the sanctuary, but of the city of Mecca into uh, the, the religion. It's a work of statesmanship, of extraordinary genius. Now, what kind of statesmanship are we looking at? Well, his idea is the opposite of the Jahili idea. The Jahili idea is tribe, not principle. They're abstract ideas. There's no universal code of right and wrong. You just act for the tribe. And the key stabilizing mechanism in pagan Arabia is the thar, or the vendetta, revengeance, cosa nostra. Somebody steals my camel, I go and steal a camel from his tribe. And then maybe it's resolved, or maybe it continues. Uh, no statesmanship really in that, just skirmishing and vengeance. So what we're looking at is something that is a radical uh, transformation insofar as here he is, alayhi salatu triumphant, riding al-Qaswa into the Haram in Mecca, and his old enemies are watching. It's one of the most famous scenes in history. And this, it's another opportunity for him to show that the old idea of Jahiliya is gone radically, uncompromisingly. <clears throat> Just as his entry into Medina was marked by his establishment of the sanctuary, the mosque in Medina, uh, a place where, to the astonishment of the Arabs, uh, it didn't matter what race you were or what tribe you were, <clears throat> the mosque was completely indifferent to that. <clears throat> Whoever arrived for the prayer first would be at the front. That was it. Didn't matter about age, didn't matter about race, didn't matter if you spoke Arabic or not, didn't matter whether you were from Ghatafan or Tamim or Daus or Hanzala, didn't matter. This blew their minds. And then when he purifies the sanctuary in Mecca, we find the anti-Jahili principle once again established. Uh, but this time not so much about overcoming tribalism, nationalism is its latest version, but the overcoming of the old idea of the lex talionis, the qisas, the uh, vengefulness, resolving a wrong through tit for tat, an eye for an eye. And this is one of the most uh, staggering moments of the ethical revolution that Islam brings to Arabia and beyond. So if we think about you know, the whole generally sorry history of human conquests, and what is done with one's former enemies and persecutors, it is not generally a very edifying story. Jahiliya is not something from 6th century Arabia, something that's part of human nature, really, and that monotheism tries manfully to overcome. I was reading recently some Byzantine history. The 11th century, Basil II, and he tries to conquer Bulgaria. Uh, Bulgaria is ruled by King Samuel, who is still remembered by Bulgarian nationalists. 
So the statesman wants to defeat Samuel and simply gobble up his empire. First move is he tells King Samuel's brother, Prince Aaron, that he'll make him king and he'll allow him to marry his, the Byzantine emperor's daughter. Mm, interesting offer. So he turns brother against brother. Uh, but it turns out that the princess who he sends to marry Prince Aaron is actually an imposter. He dresses a woman up and says, here is my daughter and intends Prince Aaron to go through this marriage ceremony and to turn against his brother and then finally turn out that he's actually married some circus harlot and not married the emperor's daughter. After all, ha, statesmanship. Right, that doesn't work. Samuel fights against the Byzantines, trying to hold on to his land for many years. And eventually there's the Battle of Cladion, one of the big battles in Byzantine history, where the Bulgarians are finally smashed. Okay, so the emperor, Basil II, is now able to take revenge. He's a hot-tempered man. What does he do? There's 15,000 captured Bulgarian soldiers. And what he does is to blind every one of them, except one out of every hundred he leaves with one eye so that he can lead the others back to Bulgaria. And King Samuel, when he sees that this is happening to his people, a couple of days later he has some kind of heart attack or a stroke and dies. So Basil II is called Bulgaroktonos in, in Byzantine history, the Bulgar Slayer. Basil the Bulgar Slayer. Okay, so that's many examples of that in human history, and it's often terrifying when the boss uh, decides that revenge is sweet. Another example of this, because this usually doesn't lead to peace, but just to resentments that rankle. Still, if you look at why the Bulgarians and the Greeks fought against each other so much in the 19th century, it's because of memories like that. David Fromkin, more recently, talks about uh, the Treaty of Versailles. This is his book, A Peace to End All Peace. It's really it's about 30 years old now, but it's worth looking at. Why is it that before uh, the end of Ottoman rule, the Middle East was incredibly peaceful, unlike Europe and so many other places, and then afterwards it became a byword for ethnic and national and sectarian mayhem? What went wrong? Well, uh, as Fromkin points out, it's because at the Treaty of Versailles and subsequently the racism, the chauvinism, the internal tribal rivalries between the French and the British and sometimes the Americans produced a Middle Eastern settlement without any consultation of the local population that has turned out to be completely unstable and destabilizing. Look at what's happened to so many of those countries. A hundred years later, they're just the only way you can govern them is through brute force. Anyway, so Frumpkin's book is something that uh, all our ambassadors ought to read before people say, oh, the region's always been unstable. No, not the case. Look at the prejudices of Lloyd George, Churchill, Kitchener, 
Clemenceau and those other people and the mess that they made drawing those lines across the desert. Anyway, enough. Eugene Rogan also, the fall of the Ottomans. Again, the European desire to take revenge on the Ottomans because of the Battle of Kosovo in 13-something. Uh, they want their revenge. Mm. The French general who conquers Damascus goes to Saladin's tomb and knocks on it and says, nous sommes de retour, Saladin. Saladin, we've returned. Again, ego, tribalism, vengeance. We have to get our own back. After seven centuries, no forgiveness, no understanding, nothing. And the result of that has been the curse of the instability and the catastrophe of the modern Middle East. So yes, Eugene Rogan's book, um, The Fall of the Ottomans, is a very good and melancholy account of that. But we saw, I remember talking to somebody who was a minor official in the Turkish government before 2003. The Americans were getting ready to invade Iraq. And we were kind of saluting loyally behind that. And this guy told me, we ruled Iraq for four centuries and it was quiet. We know how to do it. So I asked, how much have they been consulting with you? the Americans and the British and Tony Blair's people. No, they don't want to hear from us, of course. They know best. Tony Blair knows best. George Bush knows best. Brim, all of those people, they know best. And the result, of course, vengefulness, yep. chaos, catastrophe, uselessness, the explosion of jahiliyas of various kinds. It's quite interesting to compare the speech with which we're going to be closing today's talk, inshallah, which is the Holy Prophet's address which he gave on his final pilgrimage to the great grandiose address which Paul Bremer, the American-appointed new governor of Iraq, gave to the Iraqi people. He is a guy who really thought that he was the big cheese used to compare himself to General MacArthur, who was running Japan for the Americans after 1945. But still a mess. Huh. It's still coming up. There's $9 billion that nobody knows where it disappears to under his watch. Well, there's a list of 8,000 payees, but they can only identify about 800 of those. Who are the others? Well, kind of disaster. Um, and do you remember the vengefulness? Perhaps you remember the pack of cards, who is the ace of spades, who is the king of clubs, or they really wanted to get the Ba'ath party members. Keep this in your minds as you listen to the story of the Sirah. Here is the overturning of the admittedly corrupt old order. What is to be done to bring about reconciliation? No, thank you. Instead, they wanted their revenge because America's honor had been uh, offended, and the big right-wing, often pro-extreme Zionist <coughs> think tanks in Washington also wanted this done. So, huh, famously, Executive Order Number 2, that's where Bremer disbands the Iraqi army. 400,000 people with military training suddenly chucked out with no pension, nothing. Great, very smart. Huh? Every single Ba'ath Party member, including thousands of school teachers and so forth, 10% of the population sacked, no compensation, their pensions cancelled. Vengefulness. Huh? 
Foreign contractors not subject to Iraqi law, so any kind of bodyguard outfit from Minnesota can set up in Iraq and do what they like to the local population, uh, but they can't be tried by Iraqi law. So that's why Newt, Gring Newt Gingrich, of all people, called Bremer the greatest American diplomatic disaster in recent times. So we're not looking at this, statesmen, no, we're looking at a disaster. And a million people die and the place is still a catastrophe. Here's, here's his speech. Compare this to the Holy Prophet's final address and to the way in which he addresses the, the defeated elites of Mecca. The governing council created the Iraqi Special Tribunal to try those accused of grievous crimes during the past administration. People like Saddam, Chemical Ali and others. As soon as the court asks us, the coalition will turn these criminals over to face justice. To further the cause of justice for you, I pledge to give all possible assistance as it prepares for these trials. The United States will pay 75 million for the court's annual budget and will provide judicial training, etc., etc. Revenge is sweet. Yeah, they were clearly enjoying themselves. But the result was such resentment in the aftermath of the victory that peace to end all peace, it's still not peace. Because this hubris, this jahili desire for fa'ar, self-righteousness, superbia, all deadly sins, resulted in just horrible disaster. Anyway, so in our culture nowadays, there's something disturbing about the recrudescence of this idea of revenge. That the old idea of forgiveness as we say in Arabic, to be able to take revenge but to forgive people doesn't really feature very much in, at the ending of most thrillers or action movies, unfortunately. And again, this is a very standard product. So Jean-Claude Van Damme or somebody like that, uh, Charles Bronson, uh, uh, these types, um, Bruce Willis, very generic kind of action thriller. There he is, he's a retired policeman, he's tired of it all. He has a beautiful wife and children, but then somehow he gets caught up again in some mayhem. Of course, his wife gets killed tragically. Uh, he's not able to rescue her. And what does he want? Revenge, 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 thar. And there's a certain series of very, there's usually a bar fight, there's usually a kidnapping, he escapes from the kidnapping. Uh, and then there's a final shootout, it's almost always the same plot line. Usually the villain nowadays is a Russian mobster or an evil Arab, although Hollywood Arabs never look like any of the Arabs I've ever seen, but it's something that's in their mind. Uh, and, but at the final moment, of course, the villain is so bad that he can't die quickly. No. Instead, there's a stupid fight out and he dies slowly Slowly enough to look into the eyes of Charles Bronson, who gets his revenge by seeing the enemy slowly die. It's, it's ego, it's that, it's that ancient primitive thing. And this is affecting our culture. If that's really our form of entertainment, not forgiveness, not some kind of sense of justness, uh, turn him over to the police, no, but, but uh, kill him yourself. This jahili attitude, Hardly surprising that Western societies have become so full of this new type of terrorism. Look at Wikipedia, if you can stomach it. 
there is a website, a Wikipedia page, called List of Mass Shootings in the United States in 2021. Okay. Right. And it says, as of June the 30th, 321 mass shootings fit the mass shooting tracker project criterion, leaving 352 people dead, 1,331 injured, for a total of 1,683 total victims, some including the shooter. Hmm. Now, they're worried about Muslims occasionally doing outrageous things, that's fair enough, but in Canada, all of the recent terrorist killings have been done not by Muslims, but by incels. That's the new source of, of fear. There have been two major incel convictions in the UK. That, uh, what is that about? It's about vengefulness, and a particularly contemptible vengefulness in that it's against women specifically, or against men that are getting in the way of one. It's gratifying one's desires, revenge, uh, and excruciating, unethical, ugly behavior. The Atlanta spa shootings, just a couple of months ago, eight women killed by some maniac. And it gets more and more every year. There's something wrong with the culture in its forms of entertainment and in its valorizing of the principle of revenge, the idea that there is a healing in getting your own back. And one of the glories of monotheism is that it says, no, there must be justice. And ideally, wherever you can, there must be amnesty. So. This is where we reconnect with the story of the Sira. We leave the horrible, tragic jahiliya of the modern American mall murder and school murder scene. And we look at the Sira to see how the chosen one, alayhi salatu wasalam, deals with his enemies. Those who have tortured his companions, those who have driven him bereft from his own city, those who have tried to assassinate him, those who have insulted and abused him, etc. How is he going to deal with this? Will it be like Basil the Bulgar Slayer? Or will it be like Bush and Blair and Bremer? Or will it be like the maniac teenager with the AK-47 in some shopping mall? No. Here we're talking about revelation. And so just as the Medina revelation that it didn't matter which tribe you belonged to in the mosque was astonishing to people, what is going to happen in the conquest of Mecca also astounds people because they've never heard of anything like this. So let's rewind a little bit and uh, reconnect with the story of the, the Sira. After the Treaty of Hodebiah, and if you don't know this stuff, you should, because there's no greater story. There is the Holy Prophet's Umrah. And after that, the Holy Prophet, alayhi salam, sends du'at, missionaries, out. And 15 of them are killed, um, mostly to the north. He sends another one to Bustra, which is in Syria. That's killed by a local, he's killed by a local tribe as well. And then the famous... Uh, not successful, um, but glorious campaign of Mu'ta begins under Zaid, confronting an enormous host next to the Dead Sea. And we have a certain amount of information about this. 3,000 of the Sahaba, maybe 100,000 according to some historians, we don't really know, of the Byzantines and these are kind of heavy cavalry of chariots and the whole Roman thing. Now, 
This also is an, an indication of one of the things that Islam is going to do historically. It's not just about uh, the pagan Meccans, but it already is indicating that it's going to be for and about everybody in a reparative way. Muslims, when they come to conquer Syria and Palestine and Egypt and so forth, leave the local population alone. And they are confirmed in their churches and their synagogues um, and in their lives. Unlike what the Byzantine Empire had done, if you look at Charles Freeman's book, 381, Heretics, Pagans and the Christian State. How did Christianity become Trinitarian? Freeman's view, the Emperor Theodosius said anybody who doesn't accept the doctrine of Trinity is forfeit and can be put to death. Nicene orthodoxy imposed by law. And that meant that a lot of the other churches actually welcomed the Arab conquests and there's plenty of evidence for this. But in any case, this is uh, indicated by the famous dream of the Emperor Heraclius, which is narrated in a very early hadith in Sahih Bukhari, where he hears about the qualities of the Holy Prophet and his preference for the poor and his good character. And he says to Abu Sufyan and co, who are describing this, if what you are saying is true, he will rule the place where my two feet are now standing, which turns out to be exactly what happens. It is through his beautiful akhlaq that Allah opens these horizons to him in a way that's never been given to any conqueror before or since in human history and permanent because he doesn't make the Bremer mistake so that an explosion the next day we'll see what, what, what he does. So uh, back to the Sira, Quraysh break the treaty. There's an attack by their allies, Khuzar. Somebody's killed. It turns out that Quraysh is supplying arms. Um, Abu Sufyan acknowledges that his side has breached the treaty and goes to the Holy Prophet to negotiate uh, unsuccessfully. And the Muslims secretly mobilize. They know that hostilities are going to start again. And again, these little incidents, and it's good to get a book of Sirah that has lots of detail because often you know, the, the, the beauty of it is in these little notes. Of course, if you're mobilizing secretly, you want to keep it a secret, but there's a spy. Hatib al-Ansari sends or tries to send a secret message to warn Quraysh, and he hides this in, in a woman's hair. It's found Hatib is brought before the Holy Prophet and he confesses, yeah, he's treasonable, he's a Muslim, but he's been spying for the idolaters. But he has family in Mecca and Omar steps forward. This is high treason. Uh, and says, Ya Rasulullah, let me behead him here and now. But the Holy Prophet hears his story and somehow sees who the person is and forgives him. <laughs> Has there ever before been a case in human history of somebody convicted red-handing of passing you know, secret information about the White House to the Chinese and just being let off? But this we find in this theatre again 
And again, in any case, 10,000 Muslims are marching on Mecca. Other things, and again, the details are beautiful. This is the point at which the famous incident occurs where the Holy Prophet, with his army and the Sahaba, the Muhajirin and the Ansar, on the road, there is a, a dog, a bitch, giving birth. Huh. Again, kind of first in history, the Holy Prophet, posts a guard to make sure that she's not disturbed. Thousands of men are going to be marching past and camels and who knows what, but he wants to protect her. And it's again a sign uh, of his status as a blessing for the animal kingdoms as well as for uh, humanity. Um, 900 cavalry from another tribe, Banu Sulaim, join him. What are they going to do? Nobody in Mecca is quite sure. Are they going to make a bid for Mecca? Or will they attack Ta'if? Because sometimes it makes sense to take an outlying town first. Abu Sufyan tries to negotiate. The Muslims camp near Mecca, and famously they light a gigantic number of campfires, 10,000, so it looks as if <laughs> the, whole, uh, the whole world is there. Quraysh debate, what are we going to do? And they send Abu Sufyan out to negotiate. So they meet Al-Abbas, who takes them to the tent of the Holy Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam. Abu Sufyan starts off and says, Ya Muhammad, not very respectful, you've come with a strange assortment of men against your own people. We know some of them, but some are unknown. So again, he's appealing to tribalism, to the pecking order, the hierarchy of the tribes, and saying, you're breaking this, you're not doing our thing. Shameful. And then the Holy Prophet says, and you broke the terms of the treaty which we negotiated with you at Hudaybiyah. You have supported that attack on Bani Ka'b, and you have broken the rules of custodianship of Allah's house in Mecca. So then Abu Sufyan says, well, you have this army. We don't mind if you attack the tribe of Hawazin instead, because we know, you know that they don't like you. Just leave us in peace. Don't attack the holy city, but go for Hawazin, because they're less closely related to you. We are your own people. How can you attack us? Hawazin are a long way from you in the, the genetic system of Arabia. So the Holy Prophet replies, I hope that Allah will help me against them also. <laughs> and then he says, I would now like to hear your shahada to the Meccan delegation. So that kind of confounds them. We thought this was going to be about politics and I was bringing religion into it. But then Abu Sufyan's two sidekicks who have seen something, and this man that does not think tribally, both say they're shahada. So both of his lieutenants have gone. Abu Sufyan is there. Abu Sufyan is able to say, la ilaha illallah, but on the second bit he says, there's still a taraddud, hesitation in my heart, so give me time, he says. So he stays in Al-Abbas's tent for the night. Very early the next morning, he's woken by a sound. <laughs> Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allah, etc. What is this? <laughs> like the tourist in Dubai who picks the hotel next to the noisy mosque. <laughs> what is that? And he says, how often do you say that prayer? Five times a day. Wallahi, the kathir, he says, that's too much. He tries to go back to sleep. But he watches the companions making their wudu 
And with the Holy Prophet, you can see something strange is going on. They want to make their wudu next to him, and he sees that it's because they want to be splashed by his water. It's the idea of tabarruk. Who wouldn't want to be splashed by the, the blessed wudu water of the Holy Prophet? And he says, I've never seen a mulk, a sovereignty like this. Uh, the king of Byzantium, people aren't uh, looking for you know, to pick up his soap after he's used it. This is something else. This is a different kind of sovereignty. Uh, and we know, I mean, the Sahaba did know that there were uh, blessings and also spiritual qualities attaching to the, the wadu. Wadu is ablution. Wadu is the water of ablution of the Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa And of course they would rush to conserve it. Alas, none has survived to our day. Uh, but people did know him as a healer. So people would be presented to him when they were suffering from forms of insanity. And he would touch them on the chest, or ma bihim min other, and their illness would depart. He was known as a healer. Watts doesn't really talk about this, um, but as well as a seer, a healer. Wanachasa, jamala jabirin, wakana qad a'ya, fanashata hatta kana ma yamliku zimanahu. So, another of these many stories. One of his companions, Jabir, had a camel that wouldn't go. Holy Prophet kind of prods the camel, and the camel suddenly springs to life and becomes so vigorous that it's almost impossible for them to pull it back. There's something going on with this man, and this is one reason why these hard-hearted Arabs have been taking their shahada, even on this, this Hajj journey. So Al-Abbas says, you fool, believe. Abu Sufyan says, take me to him. So after they finish the prayer, uh, Abu Sufyan is taken to the Holy Prophet وسلم, and he says, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Abu Sufyan ibn Harb himself has taken his shahada. That's like the gates of Mecca, the city walls collapsing like the walls of Jericho. He's gone. And then Al-Abbas, and you can see that the prophetic wisdom is shared by these great statesmen. Al-Abbas says, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, you know how much Abu Sufyan loves glory and honor, so give him some favor. Because that's just how he feels. He wants a Rolex or a title. He wants an MBE, something. That's just the class that he's from. Uh, and so he doesn't give him an MBE, but he says... Go back to your people and say, huh, whoever enters the house of Abu Sufyan is safe. Whoever locks his door is safe. Who ent whoever enters the haram is safe. So it's Abu Sufyan who is bringing to his people the knowledge that there's not going to be a fa'ar. It's not going to be Basil the Bulgar killer or Paul Bremer. It's going to be amnesty. And Abu Sufyan, of course, is being won over by this because his status is being maintained. And before he leaves, the Holy Prophet, والسلام, again, great statesmanship, makes sure that his whole army processes before Abu Sufyan, each led by a standard bearer. Khalid ibn al-Walid is there, the new cavalry from Bani Sulaim, everybody making their takbir. And Abu Sufyan says, these people, Bani Sufyan, Banu Ghatafan, 
These were his most furious enemies. And Al-Abbas says, God caused Islam to enter their hearts. All of this is by his grace. And then the entry into Mecca. This is the city from which he has been exiled, in which Sumaya and others were horribly tortured to death, where uh, people would sprinkle thorns on his path where they knew he would walk barefoot, where they would empty offal over his back as he prayed, where they tried to kill him on the famous night of the long knives on the eve of his hijrah, um, their bad news. Abu Sufyan is there in the Haram, and he says, Ya Rasulullah, have you ordered your people to be executed? And he says, this is the Yawm al-Rahmah, the day of mercy, the day on which Allah has raised Quraysh. <laughs> Brilliant. Mercy, and there's not going to be a bloodbath. And Quraysh now are going to be still eminent in the city. They're not going to be toppled. And he orders that the standard be taken from Sa'd, so the, the field marshal, the general, is not going to be Sa'd, who is known for being rigorous, but is given to Sa'd's son, who is known for being more halim, more mild. So Abu Sufyan goes back to his people. They're hiding in their houses, as he's directed, and says to them, shouting, Ya ahla Quraysh, people of Quraysh, Muhammad is here with an army you cannot resist, 10,000 men of iron, and he has promised that those who take refuge at my house shall be safe. And then who, who comes out? The wife. Hind bint Ofta. Uh, and we know what she's done. Uh, we know about Hind. Uh, she comes out and she says, kill this slimy, useless bladder of a man every kind of disgusting abuse. You are a pathetic guardian of your people, Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan says, hold now to everybody, do not let this woman, this Imra'a, cloud your judgment. A power has come against you which you are powerless to resist. The Muslim army comes in from Dhutuwa, and uh, still a place in Mecca called Dhutuwa. The city seems deserted, everybody's looking out from behind their shutters. And they enter the city. A few decide to resist. The Muslims are coming, but they're not going to uh, surrender without a fight. Ikrima, Abi Jahl, Safwan and Sohail uh, attack the Muslims, but Khalid defeats them. Uh, it seems that, that they are allowed to live because Ikrima and Safwan just run away, so Hale goes home and locks his door, puts his sword away. And then, by the Kaaba, the Holy Prophet's red tent is put up. He makes wudu, and he prays eight rakas. Ah. And he puts on his armour and his helmet and mounts his camel. Everybody's looking, what's, what's he going to do? But he, they see his carrying in his hand, not a sword, but his staff, Asa, his prophetic staff. 
and he goes to the Kaaba and with his staff he touches the stone. And he and everybody cries, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And then he goes around the house seven times. With this staff, he points at each of the, they say, 360 idols uh, in turn. قُلْ جَاءَ الْحَقُّ وَزَهَقَ الْبَاطِلِ إِنَّ الْبَاطِلَ كَانَ زَهُوقًا Say, the truth has come. Falsehood has fled away. Falsehood will always uh, flee away. And each idol falls forward on its face. Dismounts. Prays at Maqam Ibrahim. Drinks from Zamzam. The key is brought and he enters the Kaaba. And he orders that the images be effaced. And then he stands on the threshold of the Kaaba and he says, Alhamdulillahi alladhi sadaqa wa'da wa nasara abda wa hazama al-ahzaba wahda, which is part of what we usually say as the Eid Takbir, recalling that moment. Which means, praise be to Allah who fulfilled his promise and gave victory to his slave and defeated all of the factions alone. So he's not claiming it for himself. This isn't Napoleon or Paul Bremer. Look at us, it's Allah. وَهَزَمَ الْأَحْزَابَ وَحْدَهُ Alone. By this time, some of Quraysh can't overcome their curiosity and they come out onto the streets to the Kaaba to watch, to see what this drama is. And he says, مَاذَا تَرَوْنَ What do you think? What do you think that I will do with you? أَنِّي فَاعِلٌ بِكُمْ is there, not with a sword, but with a staff, and their idols on the ground. <laughs> and they say, Akhun Karim, Wabnu Akhin Karim. A generous brother, the son of a generous brother. So again, they're still in this tribal mindset. They're thinking, well, you're one of us. You're related to the Corleone family or something, so you're not really going to go for us. That's the logic that they're using. And then he says, I say to you, what Yusuf said to his brothers, لا تثريب عليكم اليوم There is no blame upon you this day. Extraordinary. An amnesty. Those people who had wrought horrors now feel the burden lifted from them. One of them said, it was as though I was climbing out of my own grave on that day. Uh, other little incidents. He sees Abu Bakr is not there. Abu Bakr is worried about his father, who's old. He's gone to see him in his house. So he has him brought back to the mosque to see this historic moment. And the Holy Prophet says, uh, you shouldn't have brought the old man. He's sick and not well. You should have left him in the house and I would have visited him. And the Holy Prophet took the hand of Abu Bakr's father, respectfully made him sit in front of him and took his shahadatain. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Ah, and then what happens to other criminals, war criminals? Remember the story of Hind bint Otbah, who has been trying to get everybody to resist and to fight the Muslims as they come into Mecca and who persists in insulting the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Well, just remember 
pinned is in her house while this is going on. What has she done? Who is more beloved to the Holy Prophet than his uncle Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib? And we remember what happened. She had him assassinated by Wahshi, the Ethiopian slave who killed him with one spear thrust at the Battle of Uhud. Right. So she's kind of commissioned a hit job, found an assassin. Here we find uh, Ibn Ishaq's Sira describing what happened after the Battle of Uhud. According to what Saleh bin Kaysan told me, Hind bin Otba and the women with her stopped to mutilate the apostles' dead companions. They cut off their ears and noses and Hind made them into anklets and collars and gave her anklets and collars and pendants to Washi, the slave of Jubair. She cut out Hamza's liver and chewed it, but she was not able to swallow it and threw it away. Then she mounted a high rock and shrieked at the top of her voice, I've slaked my vengeance and fulfilled my vow. You, O Washi, have assuaged the burning in my breast. I shall thank Washi as long as I live until my bones rot in the grave. So this is the horrible, vengeful, thutter-oriented Jahili woman uh, who we're looking at. But then we find... Uh, that she is brought to the Holy Prophet he finds it hard to look at her after what she's done but he does not order that she be punished and she becomes eventually one of the recognised and respected Sahabiyat and has a whole story which we don't have time to talk about here so this is the difference the Holy Prophet with his wisdom his soul seeing Firasa can see that these are people who, despite their horrors, can be brought around. Wahshi. Mm. Wahshi is also in Mecca. He's been given his freedom, but what's that going to be worth now that the Holy Prophet is there uh, and he's known to be a hitman? What chance does he have? Is he going to be you know, the seven of hearts or something? Is he on the list of people to be taken down? So he runs away from Mecca to Ta'if. And then uh, he wonders whether he should flee to Syria or to Yemen. What's he going to do there? But then in hiding in Ta'if, somebody tells him that the Holy Prophet is forgiving people. Something within him says, that sounds right, despite what I've done. So he goes to see him, his shahada is taken, and he is forgiven. Many of these people have done outrageous things, particularly in the aftermath of the Battle of Uhud, with the vengeance mentality. Abu Sufyan was seen to be kicking Hamza's body, laughing at it. Um, difficult. So then we have uh, the siege of Ta'if, uh, which fails and is lifted. Ta'if is, is important also. It's uh, mentioned in the Qur'an where it says Minal Qaryatain, the two villages of the two towns in the Qur'an refers to Mecca and Ta'if. Uh, 
Some people ask the Holy Prophet to curse the people of Ta'if because of what they've done to him. But he says instead, O oh Allah, guide Thaqif, bring them to us. Thaqif of the tribe of Ta'if. So if we look at, again going back to Ibn Hisham here, the early Sirah writer. Hmm. If you recall the incident in which uh, after so many misfortunes have afflicted the Holy Prophet in Mecca before the Hijrah, that uh, he goes to Thaqif in order to seek help. Maybe they're going to help him against, uh, against Quraysh. So here is uh, Ibn Hisham. In consequence of the growing hostility of Quraysh after Abu Talib's death, the Holy Prophet went to Ta'if to seek help and their defense against his tribe. And he also hoped that they would receive the message which Allah had given them. He went alone. When the Holy Prophet arrived at Ta'if, he made for a number of Thaqif who were at that time leaders and chiefs, namely three brothers, Abdul Yalayl, Mas'ud and Habib. One of them had a Qurayshi wife from the Banu Jumah. The Holy Prophet sat with them and invited them to accept Islam and asked them to help him against his opponents at home. One of them swore that he would tear up the covering of the Kaaba. The other said, could not Allah have found someone better than you to send? The third said, by Allah, don't let me ever speak to you. If you are an apostle from God as you say you are, you are far too important for me to reply to. And if you are lying against Allah, it is not right that I should speak to you. So the Holy Prophet got up and went, despairing of getting any good out of Thaqif. And then they stirred up their louts and slaves to insult him and cry after him and stone him until a crowd came together and compelled him to take refuge in an orchard belonging to Otba bin Rabi'ah and his brother Sheba. The louts who had followed him went back and he made for the shade of a vine and sat there while the two men watched him, observing what he had to endure from the local louts. And then the famous du'a, um, which we can repeat here because it's, it's so beautiful. Ya Allah, Allahumma, to you I complain of my weakness, little resource and lowliness before men. O most merciful, you are the Lord of the weak and you are my Lord. To whom will you confide me? <coughs> to one afar who will misuse me, or to an enemy to whom thou hast given power over me. If you are not angry with me, I care not. Thy favour is more wide for me. I take refuge in the light of thy countenance by which the darkness is illumined, and the things of this world and the next are rightly ordered, lest thy anger descend upon me or thy wrath light upon me. It is for thee to be satisfied until thou art well plead. La hawla wa la quwata illa billah. So what he's saying in this du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not to curse those people, but instead to ask Allah to protect him from his anger, from the divine anger. It's a very, and this is the, the occasion when Adas converts to Islam and when the jinn of uh, Mesopotamia convert to Islam. And that, that's another aspect of the seerah, the, the beauty of his helm, alayhi salatu which leads to uh, the melting of hearts. So what happened to Thaqif now that Mecca is conquered? Uh, the boots on the other foot. Huh. <coughs> Among the things, okay, so he's now coming to Thaqif and saying, look, 
Now you must submit. Among the things they asked the messenger was that they should be allowed to retain their idol, Alert, undestroyed for three years. The messenger refused. They continued to ask for a year or maybe two years, and he refused. Finally, they asked for a month after their return home, but he refused to agree to any set time. All that they wanted, as they were trying to show us, to be safe from their own fanatics and women and children by leaving Alert, <coughs> and they didn't want to frighten their people by destroying her until they had all accepted Islam. The messenger refused this, but he sent Abu Sufyan and Al-Murira to destroy her for them. They also asked him that he would excuse them from prayer and that they would not have to break their idol with their own hands. The Holy Prophet said, We excuse you from breaking your idols with your own hands, but as for prayer, there is no good in a religion which has no prayers. They said that they would perform them, though they were demeaning pride again. So here you see again the wisdom. The Holy Prophet is not going to enter into negotiation and spare the life of an idol, but he does wisely spare the worshippers of that idol from the the duty of actually having to smash it themselves. And thus was Thaqif and Ta'if won over to Islam until this day. So this is, all of this relates to the, the virtue of Afuhu Ma'al Qudra, his forgiveness despite being able to punish. Now, as the head of a state and as a military commander, sometimes punishment is necessary. Sometimes it is necessary to execute traitors. Sometimes it's necessary to execute murderers, to punish people, to imprison them. That law has to be there. This is not going to be some kind of anarchist community in which people can do what they like and never be punished. But in this culmination, which is so closely associated with the, the haram in Mecca, uh, we see the miracle of the prophetic wisdom of forgiveness, which the Americans couldn't do in Iraq, and which uh, the West couldn't do to the Middle East at the Treaty of Versailles, uh, and which Basil, the Bulgar slayer, couldn't do to the Bulgarians. The, the usual human story of exacting revenge when in a position of qudra. But his virtue, alayhi wasalam, was famously wherever he could to grant an amnesty to those who had misbehaved. There's even a whole chapter on this in Imam Ghazali's Ihya uh, in book 20. And the chapter is called Bayanu Afwi sallallahu alayhi wasallama ma'a qudrati, in which is expounded the Holy Prophet's forgiveness despite being able to punish. Kana sallallahu alayhi wasallama ahlam al-nas well-known hadith. The Holy Prophet وسلم, was the mildest of men and was the one who inclined most to forgive even when in a position to punish. Once he was brought some jewellery of gold and silver and divided it amongst his companions. And then a desert man stood up and said, O oh Muhammad, Allah has ordered you to be just, but I don't see you being just. 
rude, outrageous. But the Holy Prophet says, woe betide you, who is going to be just after me? And when that man turned, the Holy Prophet said, bring him back to me gently, Ruweda, and he wasn't punished. Another example, and there's plenty in Ghazali's section, this one is from Bukhari and Muslim, we'll just content ourselves with this because it is seerah-oriented. So, وَكَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ فِي حَرْبِ فَرَأَوْ مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ غِرَّةِ فَجَاءَ رَجُلٌ حَتَّى قَامَ عَلَى رَأْسِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ بِالسَّيْفِ فَقَالَ مَنْ يَمْنَأُكَ مِنِّي فَقَالَ اللَّهُ فَقَالَ فَسَقَطَ الصَّيْفُ مِنْ يَدِهِ فَأَخَذَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ السَّيْفَ وَقَالَ مَنْ يَمْنَأُكَ مِنِّي فَقَالَ كُنْ خَيْرَ آخِذْ قَالَ قُلْ أَشَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَأَنِّي رَسُولُ اللَّهُ فَقَالَ لَا غَيْرَ أَنِّي لَا أُقَاتِلُكَ وَلَا أَكُونُ مَعَكَ وَلَا أَكُونُ مَعَ قَوْمٍ يُقَاتِلُونَكَ فَخَلَّى سَبِيلَهُ فجاء أصحابه فقال جئتكم من عندي خير الناس. So the story in Bukhari and Muslim. Holy Prophet والسلام, was uh, in a skirmish and the uh, other side saw uh, an opportunity to outflank the Muslims and a man came and stood over the head of the Holy Prophet وسلم, with a sword and said, who's going to save you from me? And the Holy Prophet says, Allah. And the man dropped his sword. And the Holy Prophet picks it up and says, who's going to save you from me? And the man says, Kun uh, be forgiving or kind of steady on now. Hmm. So this is the bit where Charles Bronson is about to kill the guy and the guy says, oh, just uh, let's talk a little bit and we can negotiate. And, ha, and Charles Bronson, of course, bumps him off. Uh, so we're at that moment. And the Holy Prophet says, say la ilaha illallah, and that I'm Allah's messenger. <clears throat> and the man says, no. <clears throat> so he's brave. But I won't fight you, and I won't join a people who fight with you or against you. And the Holy Prophet lets him go. He grants him... Uh, 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 an amnesty um, parole would say so he goes back to his people and he says I've come to you from one of the best of people or I've come to you from the best of people and many other cases like this so this is what we're looking at on the one hand this statesmanship means that sometimes traitors have to be executed and that's just part of running a sustainable polity, but as much as he can and wherever he can, the Holy Prophet is granting these extraordinary amnesties precisely because he's overcoming the, uh, <coughs> the principle of the Jahiliya. So we should, we should end here and we end with that historic document which is so foreign to the mentality of people like Paul Bremer and Lloyd George and Clemenceau and other people enjoying revenge as a dish served cold. We have the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
the next year, final pilgrimage, the farewell pilgrimage, and this is what happens. And again, there's some, there's some details which are nice. In the beginning of Dhul Qa'ada, the Holy Prophet prepared to make the pilgrimage and ordered the men to get ready. Abdurrahman ibn al-Qasim reported from Aisha, the Prophet's wife, that she said that the Holy Prophet went on a pilgrimage on the 25th of Dhul Qa'ada. Neither he nor the men spoke of anything but the Hajj until when he was in Sarif and had brought the victims with him, in other words, the animals for sacrifice, uh, he ordered the people to remove their pilgr uh, pilgrim garments except those who had brought victims. That day my monthly courses were upon me and he came in to see me as I was weeping and asked me what was wrong, guessing correctly what was the matter. I told him he was right and said I wished to God that I had not come out with him on the journey this year because she couldn't complete the Hajj because of this, because of the Tahara rules. And he says, don't say that for you can do all that the pilgrims do except the Tawaf. The Holy Prophet enters Mecca and everyone who had no sacrificial victim and his wives took off the pilgrim garment. When the day of sacrifice came, I was sent a lot of beef and it was put in my house. When I asked what it was, they said that the Allah's Messenger وسلم, had sacrificed cows on behalf of his wives. When the night that the pebbles were thrown, duly came the Apostle, sent me along with my brother Abdurrahman and let me perform the Umrah from At-Tan'im in place of the Umrah which I had missed. And I, I like this description of the beginning of the Holy Prophet's final farewell pilgrimage because you can see, despite the fact that he's leading a state and is a statesman, that this is primarily about his concern for his wife who is not able to do the Hajj. And so you see that um, he is able to arrange for her brother to take her out when she's ready to Tan'aim so that she can at least do the Umrah, just to show his considerateness. And books have been written about the Holy Prophet's consideration for his wives. Um, then Rasulullah continued his Hajj and showed the men the rites and taught them the customs of their Hajj. He made a speech in which he made things clear. He praised and glorified Allah. Then he said, O men, listen to my words. I do not know whether I shall ever meet you in this place again after this year. Your blood and your property are sacrosanct until you meet your Lord, as this day and this month are holy. You will surely meet your Lord and he will ask you of your works. I have told you. He who has a pledge, let him return it to him who has entrusted, it with, entrusted him with it. All usury is abolished, but you have your capital. Wrong not, and you shall not be wronged. God has decreed that there is to be no usury. The usury of Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib is abolished, all of it. All blood shed in the pagan period is to be left unavenged. The first claim on blood I abolish is that of Bani Rabi'a ibn al-Harith bin Abdul Muttalib. It is the first blood shed in the pagan period which I deal with. The devil despairs of ever being worshipped in your land, but if he can be obeyed in anything short of worship, he will be pleased in matters you may be disposed to think of little account, so beware of him in your religion. Innaman nasi'u ziyadatun fil kufr. 
Postponement of a sacred month, this is from the Quran, is only an excessive disbelief, whereby those who disbelieve are misled. They allow it one year and forbid it another year, that they may make up the number of the months which Allah has hallowed. End of the Quranic quote. Time has completed its cycle and is as it was on the day that God created the heavens and the earth. And one meaning of this is that the lunar year has come to an end. So don't mess around in future for whatever reason with the calendar. This is how God has made the solar system. Don't try and think that you know better. Hmm. The number of months with Allah is 12. Four of them are sacred, three consecutive, and the Rajab of Mudar, which is been between Jumada and Sha'aban. Know that every Muslim is a Muslim's brother and that the Muslims are brethren. It is only lawful to take from a brother what he gives you willingly, so wrong not yourselves. Allahumma hal beloved. Oh Allah, have I not conveyed? I was told that the men said, Oh God, yes, bala. And the apostles said, Oh Allah, bear witness. There's different versions of the final khutbah, but uh, the essence of it is always the same. That is to say, he's making use of this opportunity when he's able to speak not just to the people of Medina, but to the people who have come from all over Arabia on the Hajj, many of whom are really new to Islam and learning this thing, that tribalism is no longer a basis of solidarity. That usury and money lending are a great evil. That uh, the lex talionis, the, the vengefulness, the thatr of the ancient Arabs is at an end and the blood wit, the demat, is all cancelled. So no more tit-for-tat killings. The calendar is sacrosanct. The Muslims are brothers. So what we have here is more or less the opposite of what Paul Bremer is saying, which is all about who's going to get what punishment and how we're going to kickstart the economy. And it's uh, the opposite of that. And it is based on his famous words, go for you are free. After everything that they had done, they were free. So it's very important that we understand that this is a culmination of the seerah. <coughs> that his uh, hajj and the conquest of Mecca the year before, uh, which relate to the liberation of the great sanctuary, al-haram <coughs> al-sharif wal-bayt al-atiq, from the uncleanness of idolatry and the tribalism which was linked to the idol-worshipping pantheon in ancient Arabia, all of that is overthrown. So in a sense, he's not just pointing his staff at the idols which fall over and are broken, but he's also pointing it at the attitudes of the jahiliya, tribalism, racism, nationalism, chauvinism, all of these things that modernity doesn't really seem, with all of its smartness, able to cope with. If you saw the aftermath of the, uh, the, the football match last week and the... Uh, racist jargon that seemed to be suddenly popping up again. This is all abolished, abandoned, cancelled, hateful to God. So the fact that the Muslims are radically together and equal at the Haram in the great sanctuary is the great sign of the culmination of his mission. The Mi'raj is a culmination. The Hijra is a culmination. But the 
what he does with the great sanctuary in Mecca is also very much a culmination that is not just about the spiritual liberation of human beings, a, a reminder that we're full of idols of various kinds. Um, vices are all idols if we pay homage to them. But also uh, the divisions that exist amongst human beings. And, you know, look at what's happened to Iraq. Look what's happened to Libya. Look what's happened to so many places. Look at the disaster of human tribalism in, in Palestine, ethnocentrism around the world. It's a disaster, and this is not what pleases Rabb al-Alamin. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of the great climaxes and the amazing, memorable uh, vignettes that we find in the Sira, but I think it's a particularly important one that in our divided, nationalistic, chauvinistic, stupid, jahili age, uh, it behoves us to reflect upon <clears throat> so that this Ummah, inshallah, can, can hold the banner for human mutual respect, for the opposition to evil such as usury, the neglect of wives, all of these things that we've looked at, the neglect of animals. There's so much in this story. So inshallah, may, be, we, may we benefit from this. May we always refresh our familiarity with the seerah and inshallah, internalize the message of the seerah and make it the basis of our own lifestyle and inshallah become beautiful people, luminous people. It said that the Holy Prophet وسلم, whenever he touched somebody, that person's face would shine for the rest of his life. This is in a hadith. So maybe we can be touched by some of these beautiful stories. Maybe we too can shine. Inshallah, Allah is capable of that. So may we also have the intention of making the hajj and making the umrah, these obligations to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah accept the hajj of all of the hajjis and the, the fast of Arafat, which now is, is tomorrow. And inshallah, help us to be with them and accept the wuquf and accept the prayers of everybody who's praying for what pleases Allah and his messenger on the plains of Arafat. And inshallah, make that fi mizani hasanatihim, inshallah. بارك الله فيكم والعفو منكم والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.